Well, this morning uh, we are continuing in John chapter uh, 10, and we're going to uh, go all the way to the end of the chapter. So we're going to cover verses 22 through 42. So John 10, verses 22 through 42. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long will you keep how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Never shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into this world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not, if I do, not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man are true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together uh, this morning. Father, as we open your word Father, we ask that you uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, Father, what you have to teach us in your word, and we pray that your truth will change us, Father, um, and uh, make us different uh, tomorrow because we were here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there is an apparent gap of time between uh, the Good Shepherd Discourse and here now in the Feast of the Dedication is what John tells us. Now, as you remember, many during this Gospel of John, many encounters between Jesus and the Jewish authorities occurred while he was in Jerusalem for the celebration of a particular feast. But where in the Old Testament do we learn about the Feast of Dedication? It's kind of a trick question, right? Because it's not in the Old Testament. Okay, we learn about it nowhere. We don't, we don't know about this feast because this feast, feast began during the intertestimonial period, the time between the Old and the New Testament. And it was a celebration of the uh, Israelite victory uh, over a Syrian leader who had uh, came in and occupied uh, Israel and persecuted Israel. In, in 170 B.C., uh, the Syrian leader, Epiphanes uh, had uh, conquered, uh, it's a different, I can't pronounce these guys' names, but it was a Syrian invader that came in um, and he conquered Jerusalem. He, he desecrated the Jewish temple uh, by setting up a pagan altar where they would, uh, and displaced, completely displaced uh, the altar of God. 
When the Jews fought back, and they fought actually guerrilla warfare. It was known as the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, and they, they freed the temple, and, and they basically drove the Syrians out of, uh, of the land until 63 B.C. when, of course, the Romans came in and took control of Palestine. But it was in, it was in 164 B.C. Uh, that the Jews liberated the temple and, and rededicated it. And so to celebrate that, it became known as the Feast of Dedication. Uh, and later, it changed its, na- its name was changed to the Feast of Lights, which if you remember, the Feast of Lights is actually celebrated even to today as a part of the Jewish uh, holiday of Hanukkah. The, so it's, that still happens today. Well, Jesus had come uh, again to uh, Jerusalem for this feast, and he says he was walking in Solomon's porch. And this is where the leaders uh, surrounded him. And just kind of as a side note, um, because he mentioned Solomon's uh, porch, this is where, after the resurrection, uh, this became the gathering place, the regular gathering place of the Christians, where they would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they would come back to this very place after Jesus was raised from the dead. So they're here, uh, he's here, it's, uh, it's most likely right around the middle of December. So it's been several months. I said it was a gap of time, most likely several months have passed since the, um, the Good Shepherd discourse. So it's several months, we're in probably uh, mid, uh, mid-December. They celebrate the Festival of Lights again right around the, the same time we celebrate Christmas. So that kind of gives you the, the time frame, time of year. So that's to say, just the context, and in verse 24, we see them come to Christ. They approach Him and they said, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They want, they're asking here for a straight answer. Just tell us yes or no. No more evasions. Uh, no more am- ambiguity. Tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? Now, was this his honest question? Probably not. Okay, this, this was not an honest question. This was, the Jews were really probably at the heart of what they were trying to do. They were trying to seek more clarity and understanding regarding Jesus, not because they wanted to worship Him or acknowledge Him as the Messiah. They wanted to declare openly, they wanted Him to declare openly that He was the Messiah in order that they could kill Him. That's what they want. Okay, so this is not an honest question. This is a trap. They're trying to lay a trap uh, for Jesus. And Jesus was not being uh, evasive in order to escape some sort of personal uh, consequences. We know that throughout his public ministry, he was very careful in using the term Messiah. Uh, he was very careful to use that term uh, to describe his role. And we, we know that because in the, in the Gospel of John, we discovered, uh, we've discovered we've read several instances where he has revealed himself as Messiah privately. Okay, you can think of a couple, right? With the woman at the well. He told her directly that he, he was the Messiah. And of course, he's revealed it privately to his disciples. But when it came to these public times, these, when, it, when, when, when the public became very vocal about this, then he resisted. Well, why? Why did he resist? He had a very good reason for that, okay, for resisting this. Because... The main problem with these people is they didn't really understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah. They didn't really understand it. 
Uh, again, we've said this, uh, this is more of a review for us, but the popular view is that he would be a political savior. Remember, that's, that's what they held. So as soon as, if he were to, to say that in the public, they would really probably have a mad rush to make him king and set him up and say he's going he's to drive out the Romans. But Jesus uh, knows that the Messiah, as he is called to be, uh, was to be like the one, not that the people had in their mind, but the one that Isaiah writes about in the latter part of, of his book. The one where the Messiah is called the suffering servant of Israel. Okay, that, now does that seem more like what Jesus is here to do? Yes, not, he's not here to be what the people have conjured up in their own ideas about the Messiah, this political leader. It's what uh, Isaiah has accurately described, the suffering servant of Israel. So the, the, the public at this time had no concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die. And Jesus knows that's why I'm here. I'm here to suffer and die. And they are not on the same page as me. And so um, Jesus was very guarded about using the term Messiah um, publicly, especially as now the time of the cross is drawing nearer and nearer. So he is very guarded about using this term publicly. So how did he handle the question? Verses 25 through 30, And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So, first here, Jesus says, He's already told you. I've already told you who I am, and you do not believe me. How, so how? And he elaborates. How had he told them? Well, he elaborates. He, he says, by my works, I have shown you who I am. The miracles, the, the works, the amazing things that Jesus has done plainly show that He was God in the flesh. Only God could do these things. But, and, and Jesus, we're, we're explaining kind of Jesus' words, Je, the Jews didn't understand the significance of His miracles because why? Because Jesus says it. You're not of my sheep. That's why they don't understand. You're not of my sheep. It is not been granted to them by the Father to understand. Second uh, thing to notice is that uh, Jesus openly declared that there was unity between Himself and the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, this verse here that we discovered, uh, that we read today, has been misused in the past has been misused um, the the back in the fourth century uh, Arius. I'm, I'm y'all have heard of Arius, the Arian heresy. Um, he used this verse to argue that Jesus was one with the Father, but only in a sense that they agreed on his mission. The Arian heresy said Jesus was not God. Okay, that's what he that's what he tried to uh, uh, to purport. Um, 
He just said that that uh, they they thought alike. All right, Jesus and God thought alike, uh, but Arius claimed that Jesus was not God at all. He was not divine. He only uh, he basically said they only shared an agenda, an idea of what was to happen. Of course, today, of course, the church refuted the Arian heresy. They had a council; they refuted that and put that to bed. But today, even there are some people among us today who still hold to this type of view. And you probably know some of them, right? Modern day Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Okay, they do not hold to the deity of Jesus. And they, so they would interpret this kind of verse in the same way. Yeah, this, Jesus is not saying here that He's God. He's just saying they agree on what is to be done. Well, to get to the true meaning of Jesus' words here, again, we have to consider them in their context. Okay, Context is king. Just remember that. When you're studying Scripture, context is king. Both in the immediate context that we're reading here today and the broader context of the entire book of John. So since the first chapter of the book, what is John's point in this whole book? He's been making it from the beginning. He's been making the point that... That uh, that the 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 God that Jesus was in the beginning with God, right? He's been he's been doing that. He's been he wrote that Christ was in the beginning with God and that he was God. Jesus tells us that we just went to the the Good Shepherd um, discourse that he gives his sheep eternal life. Okay, now. When he makes that claim, Jesus says, I know my sheep and I give them eternal life. Okay, a mere man cannot do that. Right? That is not possible. Um, so in that, when Jesus makes that statement, uh, in, in that we just read, you know, that happened in the timeline a couple of months ago, uh, Jesus is claiming to be God by saying that. I, can get, I give my sheep eternal life. Only God can do that. So there's a claim. Jesus is clearly saying, I am God. I'm God uh, in the flesh. Also, John, of course, has been from the beginning telling people uh, that Christ would die for his sheep. So there's a, there's a context of, okay, he, he will suffer and die. He is clearly God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him that were made. John says that in the introduction. And Jesus makes it very clear when he talks about his sheep, what he can do for his sheep as far as uh, his claim to be God. He went on to say, remember uh, in verse 28, that, or he says it here in, this, in the reading today, that his sheep will never perish. Neither, and he adds this, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My sheep, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one can ever snatch them out of my hand. You know, if, uh, if our salvation was left to us, then what would happen? Okay, we, we, could, we would surely fall away if it were left to us. If, 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 if we were not being healed in Jesus' hands, we would surely uh, fall away. But, but here Jesus promised that He will keep His sheep secure in His hand. And He holds on to them, doesn't He? That's what He says. Now, which, which, is, which is more secure? Which is which is uh, which is more secure? Um, Jesus says that no one snatches out of his hand uh, because why? Because we're holding on tightly to Jesus. 
No. Because he's holding on tightly to us. And there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. The promise here, when Jesus makes his promise, again, they're, they're challenging, hey, they think he's a mere man. We know he's God. A promise like this can only be made by God himself when you think about this promise. So again, the, the, the challenge, you know, they're, they're, you're just a mere man. That's what they're dealing with. How can a man be God? That's their whole problem, right? When Jesus is saying, I've been showing you by my works who I am and why, what I'm here to do. Um, and so this kind of promise can only be made uh, by God. When, and when Jesus went on to say that no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, so the, okay, so Jesus said, wait a minute, they're in my hand, I hold on to them. But now he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, whose hand are we in? Whose hand are the sheep in? Is it the Father or the Son? Well, the simple answer is both. Okay? That's the simple answer, right? It is, it is both. Because Jesus went on to say what? The Father and I are one. That's what he said in verse 30. The, the Son and the Father are in one essence as well as the Holy Spirit. Now, the preservation of the saints, which we know, is the work of not just the Son or not just the Father or not just the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Trinity, isn't it? The preservation of the saints. It is a work of the Trinity. And in these verses that we just read, uh, there is no stronger passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament, right, that exists, there, there, no stronger passage exists for the absolute and eternity, or eternal security of every true Christian. Jesus is making it crystal clear right here. The preservation of the saints, the, the fact that once saved, always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. That's what the preservation of the saints means, right? And that's what it. And, and Jesus is. There's, there's no place in Scripture that makes the argument more clear here than right here than what Jesus says. It is crystal clear what Jesus is saying. Now, once the once the um, or back to the uh, the the example about the the Father's hand, right, and the Son's hand. Uh, Dr. Sproul gave, gave. Um, well, I think it's in the next. So I have it. Late. I, I, he gave an example. He said, "Okay, just imagine uh, for a moment that you know a father and his son are walking along a dangerous cliff. And what if the father said, all right, son, be sure to hold on to my hand very closely, so you'll be safe.' Right? That's okay. Sounds good, right? But what if, what if the father was actually grabbing a hold of the son's hand to hold on? Which one's better?" Right, which one's more secure? Okay, we know which one's more secure. It's the father. If you, earthly fathers and mothers, for that matter, um, are you just going to go in a dangerous situation and just depend on your child? Just hold on tight to me, son. Hold on tight to me. What are you going to do? You're going to grab a hold of tight of them, aren't you? That's what you're going to do. And that's what our heavenly Father has done for us. He is grabbing hold of us. Now, you know, that is a wonderful reminder, isn't it? Because we know these things, but we need to be reminded of these things, right? Because we say we believe this, but sometimes we don't act like it. We think that, you know, we, we, we lose track of, 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 of who is actually in control and who's holding on to us. 
And, and we sometimes forget that our Heavenly Father is there. He's holding on tight to us. He's not going to let us go. And there is peace in that, isn't it? No matter what is going on in this world, the troubling times, uh, no matter if it's a believer that you know who's going through some struggles, might be tempted to say, well, this is going nowhere. But wait a minute. If they're a believer, who's holding on to them? Not, not you, right? You may be trying to hold on to them, but your Heavenly Father is the one who is holding on to them. And there's peace. There is peace for the believer uh, in that. Well, once the Jewish authorities had heard this statement by Jesus, when he said, I and the Father are one, they're ready to kill him on the spot. They grab stones is what John tells us in verse 31. Now, this is now the third time, if you're keeping score, okay, if you're keeping track, this is now the third time that John records that the Jews have attempted to stone Jesus. It's the third time. And when you think about stoning, uh, the Old Testament did permit stoning in certain instances. But you remember now, Israel's under Roman occupation. Right? The Romans have basically said, hey, we're going to let you run your affairs like you want to, but when it comes to capital punishment, we have to approve that. We are in control of that. So we reserve the right. All the right of capital punishment was reserved by the Romans. They did not let their occupied territories execute capital punishment. So legally, they can't do this. But, but what's happening? They're, they're thinking like a mob, aren't they? They're not thinking about the law. And that's what happens, right? You have a mob mentality, and who cares about legal proceedings at that point? It's a mob mentality, and things can go haywire. But that's kind of why, or that's kind of the mindset um, that they were in. Well, Jesus... They understood what Jesus was saying, okay? That's about this, who he is and what he's claiming to be when he said, I and the Father are one. They immediately understood what the implications of that. And so they were convinced that he blasphemed. Because again, to them, he's a man. He's flesh and blood. Which is true, isn't it? <laughs> he is flesh and blood. He's not a, a superhuman, he's not an alien. Right? He didn't look funny. He looks like a mortal man, which he is because he is a mortal man. And so at this claim, they said, nope. He says he's God. He's blaspheming. So we're going to stone him. Verse 32 and 33. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, why did Jesus bring up his works again? Dr. Sproul said, I believe this was an ironic question. This is ironic. Jesus' miracles had already proved he was from God, and that should have handled any charge of blasphemy. But the Jews would not accept that. They were only concerned with what they saw with their eyes. And all they saw was Jesus was a man. And therefore he cannot be God. That's, that's their reasoning. They said, we're not stoning you for your works. We're stoning you for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, what's actually going on here? He says, they says, you being a man, make yourself God. Well, in reality, what's actually happened here? God Himself has made Himself a man. Isn't it? 
What's really going on here is the exact opposite of their charge. You being a man, you make yourself God, but in reality, God has made Himself man. The second person of the Godhead had taken upon Himself a human nature. God had made Himself man. But the Jews accused Jesus of making Himself God. They got it completely backwards. Why did, why did God have to become man? Why did a man have to be here? Why did God have to take on human flesh to be the Savior of the world? Anybody ever thought about that? Why did He have to do that? Only God can bear that. Only God can bear that. But Adam was a man, so he had to be a man to do it. Only a man can give his life for another man. If you think about that? And only a man who was God can give his life for all of his people. So the fact, this was not just some idea. Well, let's go do this. This will be cool. The, the trying, that, the, that's not the way it happened. The, 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 the reality is this has to happen. God has to become man. He has to be here. He has to fulfill the law that was broken in the garden. Somebody had to come make it right. And it had to be a man. Just like Adam was a man, fully human, capable of choosing. He fell. He broke the law. A man had to fulfill it and then offer it as a sacrifice, as atonement. It had to be a man. The Jews do not see that. They do not see it. They said, we're stoning you for blasphemy. And that's the only way we see it. Well, Jesus' reply here is, we'll admit, difficult to understand. Okay, his reply, verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them and said, it is, not written, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, again, when you read that the first time, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Well, it is most likely, I think the commentators I read all agree, that Jesus was reminding them of an Old Testament verse, we find it in Psalms, where human beings are called gods. Okay, the verse he has cited in Psalm, it's in Psalm 82, it's at verse 6. And verse 6 says, I said, you are gods. This is Jesus, God speaking. I said, you are gods. And, or this is the psalmist writing these, these words. You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, the word gods, okay, is Hebrew, Elohim, mighty ones. It can be interpreted, it has been interpreted as the judges. Is the way the the explanation of the word because it's a little g, it's not a big g. Okay, is the way the psalmist wrote it. Now, what happened? It what the psalmist was referring to is these judges at this point uh, did carry out a divine um, function. They dispensed justice, and in popular nomenclature of the day, they were called gods. Now. That, of course, the psalm, if you read the whole psalm, 
you know, it's not a good message for them. Okay, they're not, <laughs> they're not doing like they're supposed to be doing. But the case still remains that uh, they were called gods. And so, what's Jesus doing? He's appealing to a historical precedent. He, he's saying that in the Old Testament, some human beings, in fact, were called gods. And his point was what? No one picked up stones to kill them. Why are you ready to kill me? Now, another thing to, to, to be careful here, that the, in, by citing this verse, Jesus is not implying that he's a mere mortal man. Now, he's not saying, I'm exactly as they were. That's not, that's not what he's saying, right? This, this, that's not at all what he's saying. Uh, this is not how this argument is going. Jesus is using argument. Now, remember when you hear argument, you think, you automatically think a negative connotation, right? I'm arguing with somebody. Well, you've got to think more like debate. Because that's really what argument is, isn't it? It's debate. Right? And that's, which is lost in today's world. People don't even, <laughs> they're doing a lot of arguing. Nobody's doing a lot of debate. Right? They're, they're, they're not debating things. Well, but Jesus is using logic. He's using debate. And it can be called argument. Even though I know our, today's world, we hear argument and we think, oh, that's bad. You got an argument. Not the same thing, right? What Jesus is doing here, but but what he's but, but what he's doing, he's using the lesser to the greater argument. So if what he's saying, if the lesser is okay, in this sense, you called a mere mortal man a god, then how much greater is this current situation that I'm in? I am truly the son of God. We've made that point clear. If the lesser is okay, then the greater must be okay, and that's just a form of logic. It's the way to debate things, right? Um. So he's, he's saying that the Old Testament, it was okay for mortals to be called gods. How much more then who is, than the one who is God incarnate in the flesh? Why it is not much more okay for him to be called God? And so that's his argument. I know that's a, a difficult couple of verses to, to understand here. Um, anybody got any questions about that? Not, not, Okay, it's okay to, yeah, y'all remember, just raise your hand if you got something you want to say. It's okay, you won't stop me. If I can't answer them, I've got a, some other resources to call upon in our classroom today. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, what, that's the explanation behind what Jesus is saying. Now, when you think about, again, back to these, the, the mind of the Jew, okay, where they're coming from. In, in our day, the modern day, the resurrection is a great stumbling block for the pagan. Okay, they deny the resurrection. It can't even happen. But in this day, the incarnation was the, was the great stumbling block. How in the world could God take upon himself a human nature? That was not at all in their minds. There was no concept of that. Um, so this, the idea that God would come in the flesh, take on a human nature, would condescend to us, was a complete scandal to the first century mind. There's no way this could happen. So this is their big hang-up. Okay, this is, this is their hang-up. I'm looking at a mere man. He says he's God. There is absolutely no way that can be possible. They, and why couldn't they see this? Jesus has already answered the question, right? Why they couldn't see this. What did he say? You're not of my sheep. That's why... You cannot hear me. You're not of my sheep. If, if they were, uh, those that fought against him uh, were not of his sheepfold. They, in fact, are the wolves. 
They are the wolves that are seeking to kill and destroy the true sheep. They are not of Jesus' sheepfold. That's the reason they don't understand. Now, before we get past this little section, we don't need to, and Dr. Sproul spent some time here, he said, we don't need to pass over this parenthetical statement by Jesus. Notice what Jesus said in verse 35. He says, in parentheses, the scriptures cannot be broken. That's the words from the Son of God about what you have in your hand. The scriptures cannot be broken. Dr. Sproul said, people ask me all the time why I have such a high view of Scripture. Well, it's an easy answer. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture, doesn't he? He has a very high view of Scripture. It is it is it is as much some people will say today that it's it's just a it's a source of historical information. You know, it's it's a great historical book and and but Jesus, of his own word, says, it cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. And that is a testimony to the Word of God and to what the Word of God says. Uh, Dr. Sproul went on to say, he said, I've heard, I've heard many people uh, say that, to de- that, that the Billy Graham style of evangelism is over. He says, we can know, this is what people are saying to Dr. Sproul. He says, I've heard people say that we can no longer stand up and say, well, the Bible says blank. He says, we can't do that anymore. Those days are gone. We have, we're too sophisticated for that because we believe in our own awareness and our own increase of knowledge. And we've moved past the Bible. And, the understand, and that understanding has done what as a consequence? It is, it is trying to destroy the authority of Scripture. But Jesus disagreed, didn't he? Jesus disagreed. He said scripture cannot be broken. It carries weight. The Bible says, fill in the blank. That has authority, doesn't it? Now the world doesn't want to hear that. But Jesus, what was he telling the Jews? It cannot be broken. So this, the Billy Graham style is not over, okay? Because the Bible says so, it's still a good answer, okay? Because the Bible says so, that's a good answer. Now, I know there's more to it, right? But, hey, that's still a very good answer. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. Jesus goes on to say in verses 37 to 38, He says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus is challenging the Jewish leaders to consider to, to not remember, well, consider his words in light of his works. Consider what I'm saying, but put it together with what I have done. The miracles are a clear validation of his ministry. You've heard the, the other, we've heard other people say, right? No, no one can open the, the eyes of a blind. You've heard the common people say that. They see it. This is the work of God. But you have the religious uh, authorities who absolutely refuse to believe that. They needed to see what they should have done is watched and observed the wonderful miracles that he was performing and they should have agreed. This man, God's with this man. He is God. That's the only way this is even possible. The implication of what Jesus is saying here 
is that they were so ignorant of God. That they, these are the authorities. They're the ones who are supposed to, to know more about than anybody else about God, right? But they are so ignorant of God that they could not even recognize the works of the Father or the one whom the Father had sent. And it was at this point there was yet another attempt to seize him and kill him. Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. <coughs> Verse 40, it says, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. As uh, and it's what I wonder how Jesus did this. I wonder how he escaped. He's we've got several accounts how he he just he would move between them and and just he hid himself from them. Um, it, that's sight is a gift from God, isn't it? And who is Jesus but God? He controls what they see. And so, just an amazing display of his deity. How. In a mob, he can just escape with no no hands laid on him. Because why? He knows now is not the time. The time's coming. Today's not it. And so Jesus, being very much in control of his own destiny, okay? Like we say that. We say that about us, right? I'm in control of my own destiny. Bull, right? We're not. <laughs> he is, right? Jesus is in control of his own destiny. And he knows they have no power over him. He knew in the fact when this argument even started, they're going to they're pick up stones and kill me. Today's not the day. Today is not my day to die. He knows that. So he remained and he left unnoticed, unharmed. The place where he went, um, this is the only hint as to where Jesus went from Jerusalem. Some, some think he went a day's journey across the Jordan Others think he went uh, farther north. But uh, in, any, in any case, the location is significant uh, for our understanding of the events that will take place very soon after, as recorded in John 11, which is the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. It, the, the statement is a little bit ironic because the, the area says that he went to the area where John first began baptizing because that would now become the last area in which Jesus stayed, Jesus stayed before he left for Jerusalem to be crucified. As we move forward, we uh, this is kind of Dr. Sproul's way of summing this section up. As we move forward, we need to keep the words of Jesus in mind. I and my Father are one. And to keep that in mind. Because we're going to see this later on in the high priestly prayer. You're going to see Jesus expound. Remember, as He prays to the Father, He prays for Himself. He prays for His disciples in the high priestly prayer. And remember that amazing thing that Jesus says about the disciples. What does He say? He says, Father, I pray that they will be one even as we are one. Your Savior, the Messiah, the Savior, the second person that God has prayed that for you and for me. He's prayed, Lord, I pray they'll be one as I and the Father are one. And what, is, what does that mean? Some, some people will say that is one in organizational unity and doctrinal unity and so forth. But Jesus spoke in the same manner in the high priestly prayers He spoke here. What, one thing we know is, is, is that when you think of 
that statement. I, Father, I pray that they will be one as, as you and I are one. Um, we may, uh, as people, okay, as churches, agree or disagree on um, certain doctrinal issues. Okay, that is that's very true. But the good news is it is that if if you have a brother or sister from another denomination and has some maybe some significant doctrinal issues, if they believe in salvation through Christ alone by faith alone, they're a brother or sister in Christ. They are one for whom Christ has died. They're, we're both Christians, and what does that mean? That means that I am in Christ, and though I may disagree with you on a lot of doctrinal issues, you are in Christ. And that means something. Okay, we have to treat each other like we are both in Christ. Fellow heirs of the kingdom. Two sinners for whom Christ has died. And that means a world. That makes a world of difference, doesn't it? It makes a world of difference. Christ is in me, and He is in you. And that is a wonderful thing to end on today the bell has rung let me pray father in heaven thank you for our time together father as we consider these verses father we thank you um, that we have uh, the new testament we have the old testament the books of sacred scripture father we're thankful for the reminder that scripture cannot be broken father as we get uh, tossed around in this world by every day there's so many things going on father that can steal our joy father thank you for a reminder that you are the one that's holding on tight to us and you will never let go we ask these things in jesus name amen